Well, I'm glad James introduced prayer prompts to you because today's sermon is set up a little bit different. Uh, We're going to have some times during the sermon that we will have some prayer prompts that you can find on the notes, either in your church center app or those prayer prompts will be on the screen for you. But after today, we only have two more weeks left in our study of First and Second Samuel. We've been in this part of scripture for 29 weeks so far. So it's been a great study. It's been a long study, but after today, we have two more weeks and then we go right into, yep, you got it. Christmas. That's right. That's right. But we're going to be dedicated to the remaining chapters of 2 Samuel, of course. Overall, during this study, I hope that you have gotten a better understanding of Samuel, of David, of Saul, and others in history that we've studied. But more importantly, I hope you realize that it isn't about these people. You see, week after week, we have seen that God directs our attention off of the people and on to Jesus. And this week, it's going to be exactly the same. When reading scripture, we're either pointed toward Jesus because we have read what we've read is so much like Jesus that it reminds us of him, or it's so much unlike Jesus that we can't help but think of how Jesus was perfect in that way. And so every topic, every person in scripture shows us that our hope and our faith needs to be in Jesus because everything else crumbles and ultimately fails. What we see today is more of what we have seen all along, comparing and contrasting. So today we're actually going to cover three chapters. We're going to summarize them. And like I said, we set it up a little bit different. I'm going to tackle a summary of the first chapter, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer. And then we're going to do the same for the second and the third chapter. If you've turned in 2 Samuel, we are starting in chapter 19, and the theme today is going to be that Jesus wins. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we bow before you seeking your guidance through your word. We ask you for wisdom and for clarity to understand your word and what you have to teach us today. We thank you for your spirit who is with us, helps us apply and understand what we learn today and take it into our lives. And so we live for your glory. Amen. Well, chapter 19 starts with a comparison. We're going to compare the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. And chapter 19 opens with David mourning the death of his son Absalom. Now, normally I do summarize the chapter, but I give you references to the verses and things like that, and we kind of work through it in an outline form. Today, my summaries will be more of a paragraph, a story, and so you can try to follow along through scripture. I'll throw out maybe a few verses that we're talking about, but I want to give you a summary of the chapter. And so we start with David mourning the death of his son, Absalom. As far as we know, David doesn't know that Joab had anything to do with Absalom's death. Joab rebukes David in this chapter for letting his emotions, even the grief over his dead son, take over his life and cause his leadership to suffer. You see, the lesson in that is that you can't forget God just because you know that things are bad. And so Joab has to go to David and say, 
you are failing as a leader because you're so caught up in this emotion. It's a harsh thing to say to someone whose son has been murdered or has died, as David knows. But David accepts this rebuke from Joab and he goes home to Jerusalem to appear before his people. This sounds great. It sounds very, very like a parade is coming back to Jerusalem, but there's a problem. The people of Israel aren't sure what to do with David. Is he king? Is he not king? You see, Absalom's uprising and then death has left the country divided. Judah and then the rest of Israel. And actually, the ones who are hesitating the most about reinstating David as king is Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah and they are causing the most issue right now. And as he's attempting to convince the leaders of Judah to reinstate him as king, to win him over, David, or to win them over, David does something unexpected. He replaces Joab, the commander of his army, with Amasa, who was the commander of Absalom's army. Now, most likely, this was a brilliant political move to unite both sides because there are enemies and those enemies or that enemy Absalom has followers and those followers do not want David back but what David does is he says I'm going to take the person that is on your side or Absalom's side and appoint him to be on my side now what do those followers have left to do make a choice and they chose to be united and we are actually in verse 14 of chapter 19 where it tells us that David's plan worked because it says he swayed the hearts of all of the men of Judah and so yes we have unity right temporarily because once he's reinstated now David goes through and shows us what real forgiveness looks like and he actually pardons some of his enemies. You remember the guy who was hurling curses, muds, mud and stones at him in chapter 16 or last week I believe. He comes and he falls down before King David. Verse 18 says that he begs for forgiveness on his knees. Because cursing the king, the thing that he did previously, is a punishable by death type of action. And so he comes before David desperate, and David pardons him, makes an oath to him that says, I will not kill you. But he's not done pardoning people or hearing them out at least, because then Mephibosheth comes forward. You remember, he has a side to this story as well. Last time we heard that Ziba had said that Mephibosheth was a traitor. But Mephibosheth tells a different side of that story, and David believes him. David already has given Ziba all that belonged to Mephibosheth, and so we have a problem. So David tries to fix that problem, and he says in chapter 19 that he's going to now split that 50-50. One of them has to be lying, but David says, I'm not pursuing that. I am splitting this 50-50 so I can honor my commitment to both men. And then a third person comes in at the end of chapter 19, and David makes a generous offer to an aging man named Barzillai the Gibeonite. You may remember Barzillai the Gibeonite. He brought food and supplies to them while they were on the battlefield and while they were out in exile. So David invites him to come back with him to Jerusalem. What an offer. 
come with the king. And Barzillai basically says, I'm too old. Don't waste your time on me. I'm too old. I want to stay put. But I do have someone that if you're willing, he could take my place. I want him to go with you, King David. And David agrees, and he takes this person with. David now resumes business as usual, but what we find out is that there's still division. There's still division between Judah and Israel, and actually the tables have turned, and now Judah is the one who's passionately backing David, and Israel is now against him. And there's arguing, and there's comparisons, and there's ones that are saying, we're no more loyal. No, we are more loyal. No, we have more right to honor him. No, we have more right to honor him. And it's this argument that is turning into this great division, and this is where I want to focus for chapter 19, on this division. You see, here's David. He's trying to focus his attention on getting the country back in order and united. He returns to Jerusalem. He pardons his enemies. He was hoping to move on successfully. David even showed us what it means to put the wrongs of others behind him. But the tribes of Judah and Israel united against each other. They couldn't let it go. They had to fight. They had to argue and while the physical war was over, the war of outdoing one another burned intensely. It caused dispute and unrest. They turned it into an argument of who was more loyal to David and who had the greater right to honor David. And this competition about loyalty would be the very attitude that set the stage for civil war in David's time and the eventual, eventual division of the nation into two. The sin... The strife and conflict of this story reminds us of something. Our broken and divided world that we live in. You see, just as Israel was divided, so is our world. By hatred, political strife, moral decay. But in the midst of this division, we have a promise to look forward to. The promise of a perfect and united kingdom to come. Because we notice two things from chapter 19. The first thing that we see is that man's kingdom is divided and ultimately it's hopeless. But we see a contrasting view when we look to God's kingdom and we see that God's kingdom will be perfect and united in Jesus, the true king. Isaiah 11 Verses 6 through 9 says this about the coming kingdom of perfection. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This passage shows us that in God's kingdom to come, there will be no division, no strife, no hatred among God's creation. The peace that was lost in the Garden of Eden will be fully restored. It's a kingdom where even animals will live in harmony, a symbol of the peace that is going to reign. And the source of this perfection and this unity and this peace is Jesus. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming again as the conquering king. No more failures of man. 
We see in Revelation 19.11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. There is only one perfect king where there will be no failures in his leadership. There will be no division in his kingdom. And it's the one that we put our hope in. It's where we focus our attention. It's on Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus returns, he's going to bring an end to the division and the chaos in this world. He's going to establish his kingdom of perfect peace and unity, and all will recognize and all will proclaim that he is Lord, it tells us in Philippians 2. And that is the glorious day that we will look forward to. And so we're going to pause before we go to chapter 20. On the screen, you're going to see some prayer points, where when you think about the story in chapter 19 and the division and the hatred and the arguing and all of that, we need to evaluate that in our own lives. And so I'm going to introduce this prayer and give you a pause to be able to go through the different prayer points that are on the screen. You can put them up now and you'll see where our focus needs to lie. So let's pray. Father, in this world, in our lives, in this church, we see division caused by things that are of this world, like fleshly attitudes, fleshly desires, unrepentant sin. But today, Lord, we take these next few moments and we bring those before you. We don't bring before you the sins of others with other people on our minds for their own correction. No, we bring before you our own mess and we ask that you give us strength to focus on what truly matters. Would you take the next few moments as all of the points can appear, you can work through them and just pray them in your own lives. Father, too often we get caught in trying to scramble to write down notes from a sermon. We get caught too quickly focusing on other parts that maybe interest us more and we forget that we can come before you and we can allow your Holy Spirit to convict us. And so, Lord, this morning give us clarity to focus on your coming kingdom that is perfect and in harmony because of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for looking to this world, to the ways of man, or to ourselves as the solution for anything. Let us keep our eyes set on you and your coming kingdom. Let us live in the reality of that kingdom today because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Amen. So we move into chapter 20 and we're going to see that what sin destroys, Jesus restores so chapter 20 opens with what scripture defines or calls a worthless man, a Benjamite. 
Benjamites were Saul's people, and his name is Sheba. He decides to gather a following because they think that the king should still be a Benjamite, not someone from the tribe of Judah like David. And so Sheba calls for the military men of Israel to leave David's army, and they do. So David calls on his new military commander, Amasa, the one who replaced Joab. And he tells them to get their army ready to attack in three days. But Amasa procrastinates. And so David, as a good leader, says that can't happen, and he calls back the former commander, Joab. And when Amasa finally shows up to this scene, Joab pretends to greet him, but he stabs him instead. Verse 10 describes this. It even tells us that it took one stab and his intestines were on the ground. If you're keeping track, Joab has now stabbed or impaled three people, Abner, Absalom, and now Amasa. With Amasa dead, Joab picks up where he left off as commander of David's army, and he goes after Sheba, this one trying to raise a rebellion. When they get to the city of Abel where Sheba is, they surround it, but before they are ready to destroy the city, a wise woman comes out. She describes herself as peaceable and faithful. She reminds him that the city has a heritage of following God and that in order to protect the entire city, she will deliver Sheba's head over the city wall. Yes, chapter 20 is that intense. We've had intestines on the ground, and now in verse 22, we see that they cut off the head of Sheba and they threw it over the wall. This satisfies Joab and his army, and they turn and they go back home because they see that this is the elimination of the most recent threat to David's kingship. This wise woman saved the entire city. And while this is a wonderful story for that point in time, we have to understand that, yes, David used his military might to crush and end this rebellion of Sheba, but David and his army could not end rebellion forever. David could not ever set up a kingdom that would last forever. Only Jesus will reign forever in perfect righteousness when he returns and ushers in his kingdom. You see, we see from these passages that sin always destroys and it always has consequences. And we are not capable of overcoming sin or ending its consequences. And so when we aren't capable, we need to look to the one who is. So we have to turn our eyes to Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect king who overcomes and restores what sin destroys. And sin, no matter how small we think it is, separates us from God and it carries with it the penalty of spiritual death. And it leads to division and chaos in our lives, much like the division and chaos we see in chapters 19 and 20. But we serve a God of restoration, you see, the very heart of the gospel message is the promise of restoration through Jesus Christ. 
1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What restoration and hope there is in Jesus. You see, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ in repentance, we acknowledge our sin and we seek his forgiveness, he offers us not temporary restoration, not temporary peace, not a temporary kingdom that man could set up. It is an eternal, full restoration. King David pursued Sheba to restore peace and unity, but that's an earthly, temporary pursuit. Jesus pursues us, each and every one of you, to restore your relationship with God, to have a relationship with God for all of eternity. His love and his grace are greater than any sin that you commit or are guilty of. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 says this about reconciliation. All this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, the consequences of sin may be great, but the grace of God through Jesus Christ is even greater. He reconciles us to God. He erases our sin and he restores us to a right relationship with him. And so I want us to take this time to pray. I want us to focus on the prayer points that will come up on the screen. Because we could be so caught up in sin and the effects of sin, and while those are a stark reality, we have to see the reality that Jesus Christ is the only one who wins the battle. Jesus Christ is the only one who overcomes and restores what sin destroys. And so this morning, we pray. I'm going to start and give you an opportunity again to work through the prayer points in your own life. I want you to focus on the points on the screen that you acknowledge who God is and what he has done. Father, we come before you again and we take these next few moments. Again, not to focus on anything else that's taking our distraction, but we focus on you. The battle that we are involved in may be great but you are greater. The sin that we are guilty of may be great and may have control over us right now, but Lord, by your grace and your love and your power, you are greater. And so we focus this time on you. Heavenly Father, powerful, almighty creator. We come before you and we acknowledge our sin. 
our sin that's against you and we bring it before you. We recognize right now the areas that we have pursued self instead of you. And we seek your forgiveness. We bring our minds, we bring our life before you and we ask for you to reveal to us maybe the areas that we're blind to our sin. Show us how we have sinned against you and stir in our hearts a hatred for that sin. Remind us of your power, Lord, your victory, your restoration through Jesus Christ so that with that knowledge of that power, we can stand in victory and our pursuits can be for you and not ourselves. Give us your wisdom as we navigate this fallen, evil world. Help us not be overcome by the division and the destruction that we see around us, but be filled by your spirit. So we look to the hope that's found in Jesus at all times. Thank you, Lord, for your restoration through Jesus Christ, the ultimate king. Amen. The final chapter that we're going to study today is chapter 21. And again, I'm giving you great quick summaries. If you want some more detail, you can go back and read these three chapters. But in chapter 21, we're going to focus on the battle against sin. And chapter 21 opens with a three-year famine in the land. And King David seeks the Lord for an explanation for this famine. And God responds in verse 1, and he says that it's due to the blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put to death the Gibeonites. David does a great thing here by going to God and asking for his counsel and his answer on why there's a famine, but he doesn't take it to the next step because he doesn't seek the counsel of God for how to deal with this famine. He goes and he seeks the Gibeonites for counsel. And the Gibeonites, like most man, are bloodthirsty. And they want to see seven of Saul's descendants put to death to make things even. David agrees to this without any indication to us that he consulted God on this action. He must have reasoned that it was better for seven to die than a whole country to die due to famine. But what we see is that this famine continues even after that death. It continues until the bones of those people are buried. And then we see a shift in the chapter because we see the Philistines are back. But remember, we have a promise from God that God would defeat the Philistines for Israel through David. And what we see at the end of this chapter is four different incidents, battles, wars, with an aging David who's weary and old. He has his mighty men strike down these descendants of Goliath, these giants. In fact, in verse 20, it even describes that most of them have six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Weird, right? I hear the chuckles. It is weird, but there's giants that David is looking to do battle against and they seem like they are indestructible. It seems that the more tired they get, the more things just keep coming at them. And while we see victory here, at the end of the chapter, that Israel defeats them. 
we have to look to what the bigger picture is. At the beginning of the chapter, we see that there's chaos and destruction and cruelty where people are killed to even the scales. And we look around us and we see beauty in this world because God is the creator and it shows his beauty. But this fallen world is also harsh and cruel. And Saul's family experienced that cruelty. We look around us and we see the result and the effects of sin. The effects of sin are miserable right now, but they are also miserable for all eternity in hell if you don't have the Savior, Jesus. And King David's attempts to even the scales caused death. His war with the Philistines resulted in victory, and that's a great thing, but it wasn't an eternal victory. We can't put David on a pedestal for winning this battle because it is still a temporary victory. It wasn't eternal. And so we're reminded that man's battle with sin is very real. And that we can't do it on our own. And just as David faced physical enemies in the form of the Philistines in chapter 21, we must confront spiritual enemies daily in our lives. There's sin, there's temptation, there's schemes of the enemy. And those are real battles that we must fight. It even tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as real as that sin is, there is a great message that God's battle with sin is over. You see, in Jesus, we have a perfect king in whom God's wrath, his just wrath, is fully satisfied. And that victory is eternal. You see, David had this unwavering commitment to defeat the Philistines, and it serves as a picture for us to have perseverance and dedication in our own spiritual battles. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 6, to put on the full armor of God. Because our armor, the very thing that we try to use every day to fight the enemy, it's inferior, but God's isn't. This is what it says about the armor of God in Ephesians. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up your shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the enemy, of the evil one, and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. We must look to this and see that while little victories could give ourselves credit, we will lose the battle, but God's armor is battle-tested and it's impenetrable. 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. David's battle David's victory here is temporary. 
It provided peace and safety, but Jesus' victory over sin and death brings eternal salvation. His sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection conquered the ultimate enemies that we face, sin and death. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we have assurance of eternal life. We have victory over the forces of darkness. So while we may look and see that sin's consequences are devastating, we have to remember that eternity with Jesus in his victory is indescribable. I want you to take that summary into prayer at this time because we must focus not against the big battles that we face every day, but on the one who stands in victory and we must take up his armor. We must say no to ourselves and our own defenses that we've set up or maybe the ways that we distract ourselves from the reality of sin. We must embrace that there is a reality of a battle going on, but we have to look to Jesus Christ to be the one that fights it. So would you go to prayer following the prompts on the screen? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we all must face the reality. The reality that each one of us has created an armor that we fight with instead of yours. We may take certain parts of your armor each day and feel better about what we're doing, but scripture tells us to take on the whole armor of God. And so, Lord, we come before you recognizing that any armor that we have brought up on our own is inferior. As mankind, we cannot win the battle. But you did. And you equipped us with your Holy Spirit to fight. That through trusting fully in you, all we're doing is letting you win. So, Lord, we come before you and we recognize the greater victory that you have achieved because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is the one who provides us with the ultimate victory over sin and death. David's victories brought times of peace and rest to the land of Israel. But Jesus' victory brings us peace and rest in our lives for all of eternity, giving us assurance of our eternal home. And so, Lord, would you give us the faith to put on the full armor of God, to stand firm in our faith, knowing that our ultimate victory has already been won by Jesus Christ on the cross.
And so we know that we can face the battles of life with confidence, knowing that in Christ we are more than conquerors and there are no giants that are too big for God. Let us trust today and declare that it is in Christ alone that we put our trust.